Welcome back. We have just done a few sessions looking at how Muslims approach our scripture, the tactics used, the tactics taught by some of the big Muslim debaters around the world. What I want to do now is actually go look into some of the actual arguments against the Christian faith. I want to look and see as an example of how they actually look at our text and the kind of argumentation they use. And of course, a lot of Christians um, are sometimes not quite aware of how uh, texts have been manipulated or misunderstood and so on. And so we're just going to look at a few examples now of what the Muslim does uh, and the Muslim missionary, the Muslim polemicist does, um, and how they look at our scriptures um, as a way to challenge our position. Can I say something? Every time a Muslim has challenged my theological position, every time a Muslim has challenged the Bible, more often than not, I would say maybe 90% of the time, I would say that uh, that Muslim has actually twisted our scriptures, has misunderstood the scriptures, and has actually either on purpose or maybe um, maybe naively so, has manipulated the, the, our scriptures to fit their particular argumentation. Very rarely is it actually a real good question that our, that maybe is an issue that as a Christian we need to respond to. They, they often have lots of questions to do with the Trinity, and there's legitimate questions around that, or the divinity of Jesus and the authority of scripture. Those are the three areas that Muslims um, target when they're challenging our scriptures, the divinity the, um, the, the, the divinity of Jesus, the Trinity, and the authority of scripture. In fact, one of my friends, she went to a meeting that was run by a Muslim da'i, so a Muslim, actually was a British convert to Islam, and he was putting on uh, some sessions for, for just Muslims, lay Muslims, to come in and to learn how to debate the Christian. So she's sitting there, she looks Muslim, she isn't but she is an ex-Muslim. She's sitting there listening to this, uh, to this teaching done by this British convert to Islam. And in the, in the meeting, he says to the whole crowd, of which there were many, many Muslims there, and he says, it's very easy to bring a Christian down. All you need to do is challenge the divinity of Jesus, challenge the Trinity, which Christians just cannot explain, and challenge the authority of Scripture. Now, we actually train people in London and around the world through our online courses to try help Christians actually not to focus in on the Trinity when they're talking with Muslims, because once you get on the Trinity, you usually can't get off it. We, we do say you need to learn how to explain the divinity of Jesus and also know how to defend the authority of Scripture. But on the whole, the Trinity is a, such a deeply complex idea. It's not only, only, it's only when they look at the whole of the Old and New Testament does the Trinity become very real and very apparent. So it's not something you can normally debate in a debate sitting. You can do Bible studies on it, but in a debate sitting, it's not setting, it is not helpful necessary to focus on the Trinity. And the reason we say that, it's not because we're ashamed of the Trinity. The Trinity is the most wonderful, beautiful concept of God. It is why God can come and walk and talk with us and yet simultaneously be ruling the heavens and the universe and so on. But it's because in a debate setting, you need quick and, and, and concise little argumentations when you're in a debate setting. So for that setting, we say, don't get stuck on the Trinity, move on to other topics and especially hold Islam accountable. That's for those of you who live in very uh, in, in societies that have free speech. In societies where you don't have free speech, um, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, then you have to be careful with the polemics you use. You have to be careful with asking probing questions 
millions of Muslims. And yet somehow there has to be a way that we can get our Muslim friends thinking and there has to be a way that we could maybe in a very careful way use some of the material that we've learnt through the last uh, few sessions and in a wise way apply it even in the more, more restrictive situations that some of you will be living in. Now, you know your context, you know how you can use this material. If nothing else, use this material to ground you, to make you feel confident of our position in Christ and to see the weakness of Islam so you don't fall for some of the argumentations that Muslims will give you. Now, I'm going to actually bring, um, bring to light a, um, a paper that is online and you can go read the whole amount, for, the whole paper for yourself um, in your own time. And it's a paper that was put up and written by Sharon Murad, myself and Jay Smith, um, actually in 2006, so uh, quite a few years ago now. But um, it's a paper and, and it's entitled Women in Islam versus Women in Judeo-Christian, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, the myth and the reality, an article by Brother Sheriff Mohammed. And this paper went viral across the Muslim world. And I've seen hard copies on Muslim book tables. And it's still today, I come across argumentation that was presented in this paper by this Muslim um, some years ago. And it's still relevant for today because these kinds of argumentations Christians are having to try answer. So I wanted to use this as an example uh, of, of how a Muslim grapples with our scripture, how a Muslim often addresses our scripture. And for you to just to be aware of the kinds of pitfalls we Christians can fall into as we try to respond to the kind of argumentation Muslims uh, put against our Bible. This is talking about women in Islam versus women in Judeo-Christianity. Now, the first thing to remember is this. When he addresses our Bible and he comes up with all sorts of accusations, he almost ignores all of the positive um, stories and the positive sayings and the positive teaching about women in the Bible. He completely ignores it. Now, some people might say, well, Betty, actually, you've been very negative about the Quran these few sessions. The reason I've been negative about women in the Quran these few sessions is because the view of women in the Quran is just negative. It just is negative. Even the one or two kind verses in there, for example, where it says, for your wife is a raiment for you and you are a raiment for them. Or it says um, to treat uh, your wife with affection. Uh, even then, when you compare it to the Bible, it's nothing to what the Bible says, where it talks about um, agape, sacrificial love between a man, between a man to, his, to his wife. And so just compared to the Bible, there's just nothing positive about women in this book. But in the Bible, there's a lot of positive stuff about women. And so when he addresses the Bible, he only takes out negative examples. He glosses over the troublesome texts of the Quran and he ignores much of the Quran when he's presenting the Islamic position. And he looks at, he downplays the serious oppression of women in Muslim lands today. And he tries to find oppression in Christian lands. He thinks, of course, some lands are Christian. There is no Christian land. We're not a theocracy. We are Christians who live in a land that may have more churches than other lands, but there's no Christian nation out there. Even if a president is a Christian, it doesn't mean it's a Christian nation. It may be a Christian in, in government, but it's not a Christian nation. And so he downplays all the abuses in the Muslim world and he only zeroes in on the abuses of women, i.e. the prostitution that you see in the streets of women or the abuse that our Western societies are very, very open about in the Western world, ignoring the terrible abuse against 
women in the Muslim world. He's very selective in when he approaches the Bible. So he'll pick and choose what verses to challenge and not see them in their context. He has a very poor understanding of biblical hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible. And the last session, that's what we are going to do. We are going to do some biblical hermeneutics. How do we as Christians interpret the Bible? And then how do we make sure Muslims interpret the Bible that way too? So we can train ourselves and our Muslim friends to rightly divine the word of God, to rightly articulate and and understand and interpret the word of God. And then he uses the early church fathers and apocryphal Christian tradition or Jewish traditions as if that's what is biblical. That's just apocryphal literature or that's just the the sayings and beliefs of early church fathers, but has nothing to do with the word of God. So let's start now with a few of these argumentations that this particular Muslim man, Sharif Muhammad, came up with. So this is his argument. This is what he says. And I'm just going to present to you some argumentation from his perspective, which has permeated through the minds of Muslims across the Muslim world. And I want you to think through, as I say his argumentation, I want you to think through how you as a biblical Christian will respond to this. I want you to think through how has he manipulated my text? How has he misunderstood the text? What verses can I use to respond to this? And I'll give you some short responses, and I, but I want you to think through of more detailed responses that you can come up with. So he says this, when you're contrasting the Bible and the Quran, he says the Quran, in contrast to the Bible, when it comes to the fall of man and woman, it says the Quran places equal, equal guilt or equal blame on Adam and Eve. He says in the Quran, Eve does not, um, Eve does not tempt Adam. Eve is not the source of the sin. He says that Eve is not blamed for the pains of the, that the woman goes through. So the, so the pain that every woman goes through when she gives birth to a child, um, he says that um, Eve is not blamed for that. And it's not her sin that has done that. He says in the Quran, Surah 6, 164 and Surah 53, verse 38, he says, God does not punish anyone for someone else's fault. So, of course, uh, we know in the Bible, the whole point when Eve, Adam and Eve sinned, God then immediately brought about a solution that someone was going to pay for that sin and he was going to crush Satan's head in Genesis 3, verse 15. But he says, God freely, and of course, he's using the word God. He's not using the word Allah. God freely forgave Adam and Eve their fault. He just forgave them. And there was no consequence to the sin. And the sin was done by both of them. Well, immediately as a Christian, I know how to respond to that. First of all, for him to say that everything is Eve's fault is not a a very honest approach to how the Bible teaches. To say that Eve is the source of all the sin and that the blame is only put on the woman in the Bible, that's just not uh, simply true. In fact, Romans 5 says, just as sin entered the world through one man, so the world is then redeemed through another man seems to even put the sin on the on the man's shoulder. Now, that's not true either, but it's just interesting that Romans 5 talks about that. Then when he says that God doesn't make someone pay for the sin of Eve, well, um, no, we would agree with that. God doesn't make just a mere human being pay for the sin of someone else, but can God himself pay, the, pay for the sin of human beings if that's what he chooses to do? Absolutely, to bring us into relationship with him. So point out to a Muslim, we don't say that a human being pays for someone else. It's someone else that pays for us. It's not just a mere human being. That will flip the Muslim's idea on its head and they will begin to process that they've got a false idea. Then when Muslims say, oh, Allah just freely forgave Adam and Eve, 
you can say to them, well, that's interesting um, because actually he freely forgave based on what? How did he forgive? Uh, Is Allah not holy? Is he not just? Based on what did Allah forgive? Because someone had to pay. Is Adam and Eve, they have to pay. Because if you look at Islamic law, when a human being does something wrong, the human being pays for it. That's the whole point of Islamic law. That's the whole point of the Islamic way of life. So who paid for Adam and Eve? There's no answer to that. Also, they say there's no consequence of sin. Well, why are Muslims walking on the earth today? Because they should be in the paradise where up outside of the earth, because that's where the Islamic paradise or garden was, they should still be there. But they're actually paying for it today. Why do women have uh, childbearing pains today? Why do they have pain when they give birth? Why do men have pain when they go to work? Why does everyone have pain when they go to work? There's pain in all that we do. There's difficulty in all that we do. But Muslims say there's no consequence to the sin of Adam and Eve. So help them process that through. That's the Bible that answers all that. The Quran gives no answer whatsoever. And when the Quran says that Eve is not blamed, and of course in the Quran she's called Hua, she's not called Eve. But when Hua is not blamed, the Quran really does not mention Hua in the original story of the garden. Hua is not part of the story. It's all about Adam. And Satan is told to bow down to Adam. It's like Adam is put on a pedestal. So Eve is hardly mentioned. So he is trying to draw out theologies that are not even in the Quran. Let's move on to another uh, point that this particular Muslim uh, makes. He talks about Eve's legacy. So Eve is the reason why we have all the sin we have in the world. That's just not at all true what the Bible says. Um, So Sharif Muhammad says this. When you look at the Bible, he says the biblical image of Eve is one of a temptress and all women inherit her guilt. This is how he's interpreting our Bible. So all women interpret, uh, inherit her guilt and her guile. Consequently, women were all untrustworthy, morally inferior and wicked. Menstruation, pregnancy and childbearing were considered the just punishment for the eternal guilt of the cursed female sex. And that is a, a, is a quote that he's taken. Then he quotes from Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, 7, 26 to 28. Oh no, Ecclesiasticus from the Bible. And he says, it shows that there is no righteous woman. And I tell you, every other Muslim person that I talk to quotes this verse from Ecclesiastes 7. It shows that no righteous woman exists. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the women, those particular women, it was talking about a group of particular women, that they couldn't find a righteous woman in their midst. Because the Bible talks about lots of righteous women through through history. The one named woman of the Quran, Mary, was seen as pure. The Bible describes her as a pure girl. So there are many pure righteous women um, through, through the Bible. So Ecclesiastes 7 is talking about a specific group of women where they couldn't find a righteous woman in that group of women. But of course, there's many groups of women that are not righteous and there are many that are. So then he goes on to say, citate, um, to, to give um, lots of non-biblical citations to support his position. And that's always what Muslims do. And then he talks about the nine curses put on women, a list that Jewish rabbis have come up uh, with. And this is from the book of Ecclesiasticus. In the Bible, we have a book in English, we call it Ecclesiastes. In the Jewish Apocrypha, there's a book called Ecclesiasticus. And so often I hear Muslims talking about a quote and they will always say, in the book of Ecclesiastes, 
if any of you have read the book of Ecclesiastes, you're sitting there listening to your Muslim friend who is apparently quoting from the book of Ecclesiastes. And you have to stop your Muslim friend there and say, you know what? I don't recognize that verse you've just quoted. I think you mean Ecclesiasticus, which is not a biblical book. It is something else outside of the Bible. So you, in, in, not, in kind of ignorance, actually are quoting from something that's got nothing to do with my Bible. So this particular gentleman, Sherif Muhammad, is quoting from Ecclesiasticus, and he quotes the daily prayer that a Jewish man makes. And in the daily prayer, they thank God that they're not born a woman. Then he says, in Christianity, Eve is pivotal. She is key. Because she is, and listen to this, she is the reason for the mission of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had to come from because of Eve's disobedience. She is the source of original sin. Eve is responsible for her own mistake, her husband's sin, the original sin of all humanity and the death of the Son of God. How many of you have ever read that in the Bible? And I tell you, whenever a Muslim says that, you hand them the Bible and say, show me. I don't even recognize these claims you're making about my Bible. Show me the verse that says Eve is responsible for all of humanity's sin and responsible for the death of the Son of God. That original sin starts with her. You show me. And then it says all of her daughters are also sinners and they are treated as such. And then to support his position, he quotes from some of the early church leaders um, from many, many centuries ago, Tertullian, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther. And some of these guys had ideas that were what we would consider a little suspect today. They were probably a little bit chauvinistic, that they were a product of their culture. But is Tertullian, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas and Martin Luther our role models for today? Are they prophets? No, they're just Christians who were products of their own culture. They would have had some funny ideas. So what do you have to do? Remember, we've said all the way through the series, the book and the man, the book and the man. You go back to our book. You don't go back to Thomas Aquinas. You don't go back to Martin Luther. You go back to our book. It's this book that you find your theology from and bring the Muslim back to there. And don't defend those early church leaders. Don't defend them. Some of them did some amazing things, but they also said some wrong things. They were wrong in some of their ideas, including their position on woman and for some of them, their position on slavery. Just say to them, I don't need to even defend those quotes because they're not my Bible. But you show me in the Bible where Eve is blamed for the sin of all humanity. Then he goes on to say, he says, the Quran in Surah 3:35, he says, look at Surah 33:35, that big equality verse. Men and women are listed together as believers and are given forgiveness. Nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 71. Men and women are to do good deeds and obey God. Uh, chapter 3, verse 195. Men and women are members of one to, to another. <clears throat> And so on. Men and women are believers who do good deeds and enter paradise. Um, 1697, men and women who do good deeds will be rewarded. So he has all these glossy uh, stories of men and women in the Quran. And then he says, the purpose in summary, the purpose for women is the same as that for men in Islam, to worship God, to do good deeds and avoid evil. The Quran never says that men are made in God's image. Uh, by the way, in, in a lot of Muslim apologists will say that only women are made in the image of, only men are made in the image of God. So they quote part of Genesis 1, verse 27 and 28, where it says, God made mankind in his image, and they stop right there. Ooh, mankind, males, not realizing mankind means everyone. And then the very next clause says, male and female, in his image he made them male and female. 
So like to say only men are made in the image of God, according to Christian theology. Well, they say no one's made in the image of God. Both men and women are God's creation. The role of women is not limited to childbirth and women must do the same righteous deeds as a man. The Quran never says there are no righteous women, but instead holds women up as examples. Folks, that is completely not what the Quran teaches. The Quran does show many examples of women that are not looked upon as good or some examples. Actually, women are not really mentioned much in here as any example. They're only told how to behave. And in fact, men are told how to behave towards their wives. Very rarely are they addressed. They're very rarely addressed in how to live in life. They are addressed in Surah 33, 35, in their position before God in doing righteous deeds. But when it comes to actually how they are to live, they are always suppressed. They're even threatened in Surah 60, um, 66, where Allah threatens them that he will place them with better wives if they don't uh, begin to obey Muhammad. So there's all sorts of negative examples of women in this book. But do you see how he's totally taken some fairly chauvinistic um, or misogynistic, i.e. anti-female, pro-male ideas or quotes from church history as if that is biblical ideas. The Bible puts the blame of humanity squarely onto Adam and Eve. And it, it shows very clearly, if you look at the story in Genesis 3, it shows how Eve was there. Satan came to Eve. She took the, the fruit or whatever it was that she ate. And right beside her was her husband. Did he stop her? No. Did he help her? No. What did he do? He took the fruit and he ate of it. There's, so he's imposing onto our text something that is not there. Eve is not blamed for the sin of human beings. Both Adam and Eve are. And of course, Romans 5 very clearly explains that. Let's go on to something else. Now he goes to an Old Testament quote. And in the Old Testament, he, he, again, he's, he's, he starts to quote from Ecclesiasticus. So be very careful with that when you come to Muslims. He goes to an Old Testament idea in Leviticus 12 about how in the Bible, a mother's ritual impurity was twice as long for a baby girl than for a baby boy. See the inequality it has for women in the Bible. The Quran, actually Islamic law has quite a few similar ideas um, for women and for, for boys as well. But, but he's imposing on a text as if that's a bad thing. The Bible doesn't tell us why it's twice as long when a woman gives birth to a baby. And in the Islamic, in the, excuse me, in Mosaic law, it says how um, a woman is, to, um, uh, is kept um, in a state of uncleanliness, not moral uncleanliness, just ceremonial. It's just impurity in her body needs healing. It's twice as long for a female born than for a male. The Bible doesn't say why. He then quotes from Ecclesiasticus to support his position. And he, he talks about how in the, in the Quran, Islam, in Islam, a, a, a girl is a blessing to that of a boy. Fascinating how he's ignoring many hadith that don't seem to uh, affirm that. And he is also um, trying to put something onto the Bible that's just not really there. He's imposing on our text. Then, of course, he goes to a New Testament example, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34 to 35, where he says, women are forbidden from speaking in church. How can a woman learn if she can't ask questions and if she must be in full submission? The Quran, however, refers to an occasion when a woman who argues with Muhammad and is then judged right with Allah from Surah 58. Of course, he ignores uh, the verses where, it's, where it talks about Muhammad's wives in Surah 33, um, where Muhammad's wives are said the best place for them is in their homes, where it talks about gender segregation, where he, there's a hadith that we're going to pull this out in the next 
next session, where in the Hadith, uh, women are, um, are encouraged not to go to the mosque um, or they have to obey their husband and be given permission to go to the mosque or to pray a certain, uh, a certain amount of times. And he also takes a particular scenario that was happening in the Corinthian church and you just allow the Bible to speak for itself. In this passage, it says, it talks about women being quiet, but of course the verb, the, the, the word that's used in there is not the word that's normally used for total silence. Um, it's more talking about learning in a, with a peaceful, quiet attitude and not disturbing the peace. That's the word that's used. But in the context, it actually says in this particular passage, it actually says that a woman is to ask her husband um, at home home. Um, so she's to go home and ask her husband if she has questions. So if you read between the lines, it looks like there was women who were interrupting the church service and that the, the, the actual challenge is women don't disturb the service, ask your husbands at home. And if you really take that verse literally, if you really want to say women are silent, even though it's not the word that's used, you would then have to say it's only married women that are to be silent because it only addresses married women. I'm single. Maybe I can speak in church all that I want. So you have to be very careful when you deal with these these scriptures um, in the New Testament. But of course, he's trying to find the way to try to shut up women. And so often, Muslim missionaries will come to us Christians in London, us Christian missionaries, when we're preaching out in public, and especially if we're a woman, and they will say, the Bible tells you to wear a hijab. The Bible tells you to be quiet. And they usually use stronger terms than that. And the Bible never tells a woman to be quiet, especially in an evangelistic setting. There were many evangelists in the New Testament. The Bible never tells the woman to be quiet when we're speaking for God in the public setting. And we as Christians must make sure that we are not telling our women to be quiet when we're in the public setting. In fact, it looks like that God is certainly in the Western world is almost raising up more women right now to be his public ambassadors than men. There are more women speaking on the streets of London than there are men because God isn't hindered by gender. So when a Muslim tries to impose on our text an idea that's not even implied, you need to make sure you're not being stumped by the Muslim missionary in how he's manipulating our texts. They will come and they will talk about how in the Old Testament, remember he's often going to the Old Testament and he says how women didn't have the freedom to have the testimony that men do today. He's totally ignoring his own story, his own Quran in Surah 8, um, 282, where it says a woman's testimony is half that of a man. So brothers and sisters, remember this. Whenever a Muslim missionary or just a Muslim friend is challenging you, be very aware that they often have a plank coming out of their own eye when you only have a speck and you don't even have a speck. Time and time again, as soon as a Muslim throws a polemic against your Bible, be thinking in your head, what's the plank in the scenario? What is the plank? And find the plank and then turn it to your Muslim friend and say, ah, brother, sister, you have a far worse problem than we do. Look at what your Quran says. Look at what your Muhammad did. And then expose what their Quran and what their Muhammad did and show how actually what he is most and she is most likely done with your biblical text has actually manipulated it, has imposed upon it, has twisted it for his agenda, has misquoted only taken a little bit of it, has not looked at the context, has not seen the full picture. So that's probably one, uh, and as a word of advice, one of the, the, the best words of advice I can give when you are talking with a Muslim is to see that we If we even have a speck in our eye, we only have a speck in our eye. When the Muslim is challenging you, he 
always, I would say 99% of the time, has a plank in his eye. And what this man, Sharif Muhammad, has done, when you read the whole rest of the paper that you can get online, he has completely misunderstood the scriptures and he is our scriptures and he's completely ignored the issues with his own book. Whilst we have a speck and not even a speck in our eye, he has a plank coming out of his own eye. Point that out to your Muslim friend and help them see the truth of the problems of this book and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Bible, this book.